Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor helps us understand the difference between a cold and a flu. And it's possible that you can have the flu and a common cold within the same span of illness. They're all caused by different viruses. A nurse manager will talk about the care provided in the hospital burn unit for burns, frostbite, and other related injuries. If it's a child or an older adult, their skin is much thinner, so the depth of the burn may be much deeper, and they may have to have surgical interventions. And we'll learn about a nonprofit dedicated to helping those who are affected by mental illness. One in four families is impacted by a loved one being diagnosed with a mental illness. So these are very common, and yet we don't talk about it. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll take a look at scalding burns, frostbite, and other related injuries that are treated in the hospital burn unit. Then, we'll learn about the Syracuse chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. But first, a doctor goes over what we need to know about colds and flus to keep ourselves and our families healthy through the winter. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Central New York is in the midst of cold and flu season, so today we're checking in with Dr. Jared Bagatelle. He's the family physician who directs employee and student health at Upstate. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Amber. Nice to see you again. How's it been going so far this season? Whew. Well, aside from being extremely cold, it certainly uh, <laughs> it is flu season. And uh, typically, flu season could be anywhere between October and, and May. And we do tend to see the peak season around this time. And that's uh, falling on the calendar just as we expected. Just as expected. So yeah. are we widespread? Yeah. New York State has been considered widespread since December 20th, actually. And uh, t- 45 states across the country uh, have been uh, deemed widespread flu activity uh, as well. So it is, it's across the map. It's kind of everywhere then. Yeah. So what is this year's strain characterized by? What are the symptoms most people are complaining of? Sure. What's most prevalent? Yeah, well, it's it's always difficult to get a sense if you've got uh, you know a cold or if you've got the flu. But for folks that have the flu, they, they primarily know that they're uh, exceptionally ill. Um, what folks are presenting with uh, this season, as they do uh, previous flu seasons, would be sudden onset of aches and chills, uh, perhaps a feverish feeling, and, uh, and, and a cough, headache. Uh, folks who get a cold might more typically have milder symptoms. They'll, they'll have a sneezy, sore throat, runny nose, congestion. Uh, they, they won't, uh, it'll be more of a gradual onset of symptoms. But the folks these days who are coming in to see us with the flu are, are feeling as if literally a, a, they got run over by a bus and, and they're and feeling they can, just they profoundly achy. They can tell you they around can, they, 2 o'clock. They can when... say the exact time it started wow. as opposed to kind of kind of the gradual stuff. So it's, um, it is flu season and, and we're there. You know, compared to last year so far, we're going to wait and see how it, how it falls through. Uh, but the good news is that it appears that at least by first account, the, the strain that's showing up is one that was in the flu vaccine. So it oh. looks as if we've... We hopefully will have a better match this year than we did it's last year. Influenza A. Influenza A is is what's striking us most, uh, and those who've been tested and reported to the state, uh, it's actually been uh, the type breakdown H1N1. So, and that was certainly one of the one of the strains included in the vaccine. Now, I've heard of that in previous seasons. Sure. So, is it the same one that we dealt with sure. in previous seasons? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, okay. it's uh, it, it certainly has the same characterization, and we learn from the past, and we certainly include that in the vaccines these days to protect us from ever having that that uh, s- uh, societal reaction and response to that to that strain. All right. So, yeah, it seems to be working. Let's talk a little bit about how a person tells whether it's influenza 
or a cold in yeah. terms of symptoms. And we talked about the symptom onset being rapid sure. um, with flu. But what about um, is fever? If you have a fever, does that say cold or flu? Yeah, you know, it's uh, there are textbook examples of how people might feel. And we know, Amber, that people will present with a variety of symptoms. And even clinically speaking, we as physicians and healthcare providers sometimes struggle with defining if a person might in fact have a really bad cold, or they might have a mild case of the flu. Um, but when we're talking generalization, uh, aside from the gradual onset that people might experience with a typical common cold and the abrupt onset of the flu, again, the range of symptoms are going to be more mild with a cold. So it's going to be more the stuffy nose, congestion, sore throat kind of stuff, able to get about your day, uh, and rarely a fever with a common cold. And with the flu, um, most of the time people feel feverish or have a fever, but it's, it's not absolutely necessary to have a fever, and you could still have the flu. But what's going to define the flu different from the cold, generally speaking, will be the profound body aches, the headache, and a, a dry, nasty cough without the nasal congestion, the sneezing, and, and sore throat, although that certainly can be included. So, And it's possible that you can have the flu and a common cold oh, at the within, same the, time. within the same span of illness. Um, ah. they're, they're all caused by different viruses. So certainly they're all floating around this time of the year. So what do you tell people to do at the first sign of symptoms if they really do start feeling like they've been hit by a truck? Yeah. Do they need to see their doctor or can they go home and, and crawl into bed? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, most importantly, we need to really know ourselves best. So if you're a generally healthy person, and you, you're not typically ill with, with other conditions that may uh, be worsened by the flu, such as a chronic pulmonary disease, asthma, heart disease, diabetes, any chronic illness. If you're otherwise healthy and you feel as if uh, you haven't been hit by the proverbial bus and you've got a little bit of a sore throat and stuffy nose and such, you could take some symptomatic treatment medication and make sure you cover a cough and, and go about your day, stay nice and hydrated, get some typical activity, uh, and monitor your symptoms for any worsening, uh, wor worsening symptoms. If you've got the flu and you woke up and you feel like you've got those aches and you feel feverish and you feel as if uh, you, you, you may have the flu, then certainly stay home. If you're experiencing any profound symptoms of uh, difficulty with breathing, or you've got a particularly high fever, or there's something unusual about how you feel beyond uh, having the flu, and you may be otherwise prone to more serious illnesses, then give a call to your doctor, and certainly if there's any distress, you know, head over to for more urgent uh, emergent evaluation. Typically, the questions that I would get would be, you know, my, my child just woke up sick. What do I do? Do I give, give her... Tylenol and send her on to school, daycare, I go right. about my day. Again, know your child. Know your child really well. Um, parents uh, are, are typically the, the best uh, clinical indicators of illness, and I, I often would, would trust their opinions uh, greater than most. Well, you mentioned child, um, and it makes me also think, uh, you know, elderly. Yeah. Are children and elderly more susceptible to flu? Yeah. They are. A absolutely. Well, they're more susceptible. We're all susceptible to, to being exposed to the flu, but they, at the extremes of age, as we say, are more susceptible to complications of the flu. So complications of the flu, including uh, pneumonia, um, sepsis, which is uh, getting really, really sick into the bloodstream, um, the dehydration, a worsening of chronic underlying medical conditions and risk for hospitalization and death. So yeah, uh, we're all we're all potentially uh, exposed to it in any given season. The CDC quotes five to twenty percent chance of of catching the flu, mm -hmm. and uh, certainly those folks at greatest risk are going to be uh, the, the young, uh, the older folks, and folks with chronic medical conditions. Um, as well as, as women who are pregnant. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with family physician, Dr. Jared Bagatelle. He's the Director of Employee and Student Health at Upstate Medical University. And I want to ask you how, how you advise people to protect themselves and their families. But because you are here at Upstate, how do you advise employees to not get sick from 
the sick people they're taking care of? Uh, that's a great question. And, and we advocate from, uh, we start talking about it uh, in the summer to prepare to get our uh, large employee and student population uh, as best prepared and protected against the flu season so we could all be as healthy as we can be and be available to take care of the community. So we have a very robust uh, flu vaccine campaign where we uh, provide the opportunities for our employees and students to, to get their vaccine early on. Uh, the CDC recommends that, that everybody get a vaccine before by the end of October, because when flu season kicks in is really uncertain, and it takes a couple of weeks uh, to build protection. Okay. So we we really educate our community as best we can. We offer the the flu vaccines and get it out as best we can, and we educate them about the importance of uh, keeping a cough covered. Like keep it to yourself. Avoid touching your eyes, your nose, your mouth. Wash your hands frequently. So getting the flu vaccine and washing your hands frequently are two of the most important things we can do to prevent uh, others from getting sick from us and us getting sick from others. And certainly, we encourage that if you do not feel well, do not come to work. That's what sick days are for, That's right? That's what sick days are for. And, and, and many of us want to want to be that hard worker. We want to be there for for our communities, we want to be there for our patients, but we have to be uh, realistic about what it is we're bringing to the table when we, when we come to work each and every day. Well, here we are in the heart or the thick of uh, cold and flu season, February. You said October is when I should have gotten my flu shot. If someone hasn't gotten it yet, is it just not worth it now? No, it's it's, it's never too late to get the flu vaccine, Amber. So appreciate, and all the listeners should appreciate, that it does take up to two weeks to build immunity. Um, so, uh, if by chance you, you have been exposed to the flu and you get sick within that period or you get sick soon after, be assured it's not from the flu vaccine itself. It's because it's flu season and we're in the, the peak season of flu. It's not too late. Uh, also, if you had the flu and never got a flu vaccine, it'd be recommended that you get a flu vaccine as well because the vaccine covers up to four different strains. Oh. So you can still... Uh, earn protection and build protection against those strains. Uh, you may have been wiped out by one of them, um, but certainly there, there are those out there that we might be able to protect you from. Now, the flu vaccine that I got this year, is that going to help me next year? It's a very good question. How long the vaccine itself allows the person to have protective immunity is something that is is really unclear. It's supposed to cover most people through the entire flu season, several months. But beyond that, we're not quite certain. Each year, a new flu vaccine is introduced in anticipation of what strains may be flying around that next season. So the makeup of and the composition of the flu vaccine is going to change and adapt each year. So you want to make sure you get a flu vaccine each year. And how long this flu vaccine protects you into next year is, uh, is really uncertain. Okay. All right. Um, but that's why we see ads every fall reminding right. us that it's time. It's not a, so. a lifetime protection for sure. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, what are the, are there some people that should not get the flu shot, though? Most everybody. The CDC recommends that anybody over age six months should get the seasonal flu vaccine. There are very, very small population of folks who should be mindful and have the discussion with their healthcare provider about if they should or should not get the flu vaccine. Primarily, it should be anybody who has had a severe reaction to a previous flu vaccine. And severe reaction, I want to be clear, is considered um, profound enough where you needed to be in the hospital, perhaps for resuscitation oh. Oh. or you needed uh, some uh, intervention. It's not uncommon for people after getting a flu shot to feel a little achy, feel a little sore, feel a little run down. But to be clear, that's not the flu itself from the flu vaccine. That's so your body. It's your body responding and building its, its own immunity to what it is that it's been presented. Okay. Um, that's the, the typical thought of, of what happens. And that happens with a few folks. But if, if anybody's ever had a condition, a very rare condition, and we don't need to worry anybody about this, but it's a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a progressive uh, neurologic condition that is extremely rare 
and has been associated with the flu virus itself. So uh, it, it's very rare, uh, and uh, certainly uh, people will know if they've had that condition within a few weeks after getting a previous flu vaccine. It's uh, generally something people remember and know about. So it's, uh, th there are very few medical contraindications or absolute reasons to not get a flu shot, medically speaking. And an another one is if a person is uh, currently moderately to severely ill, uh, mm. it may be wise to, to just wait postpone until. until. But mild Ill illness, generally speaking, uh, it is uh, it is it is okay to get a get a flu shot. Do most people who end up being diagnosed with flu, did they just not get the flu vaccine? Yeah, we look into that as best we can, uh, and certainly uh, there is some correlation to those who ultimately uh, become hospitalized or die from the flu. They'll look back to see that many of those folks did not protect themselves with the flu vaccine. It certainly depends upon the match and how well that matches, given the, the strains that are flying around. Um, well, you certainly have a better chance of not having any of those complications if, if you get the flu vaccine. But yes, typically speaking, those who do have more uh, serious or dramatic outcomes uh, related to the flu, chances are they, they may not have had the flu vaccine. Now, do you know if the weather... Um impacts the ability for flus to spread among people. Sure. You know, I've been hearing this, and probably we all have been hearing this ever since we were little kids, uh, our folks are reminding us, uh, put your hat on, put your coat on, because you're going to catch a cold. You're mm -hmm. going to get the flu. And uh, interestingly, it's not the temperature itself that causes a person to get the flu, because we know viruses cause the flu. When the viruses are out there, we're more likely to, to get exposed to it. And the reason we tend to see more cases of flu and common colds in the, in the winter months is because we huddle close together with each other. We're indoors much more often. We're not getting outside getting fresh air. Uh, and so we are huddled in classrooms, daycare centers, uh, work spaces, and we're sharing space. And in doing so, we, we share germs. So we have to be very mindful of our, uh, of our neighbors. Well, this has been a very good reminder. I appreciate you coming in. Yeah, absolutely. My guest has been Dr. Jared Bagatelle, Director of Employee and Student Health at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about scalding burns and frostbite. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. About a quarter of admissions to burn centers across the United States are among people age 16 and younger. And the care provided is not just for burns from fires. A variety of related injuries, including chemical burns, thermal injuries, and frostbite, are also treated in burn units. Here to talk about the care available to Central New York is Nurse Tamara Roberts. She's the Burn Program Manager at Upstate University Hospital. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So in Syracuse, do we see the same breakdown as for the na nation, the, about a quarter being pediatric? Approximately a quarter of our patients are pediatric level. Okay. Um, our larger portion is our 45 to 65-year-old adults that, that we get. So you see older and younger. Older and younger mostly. adults, yep. Now, I know the theme for this year for Burn Awareness Week is scald. Um, so can you talk about what that is? Well, what is a scald? Scald prevention is typically from your hot liquids. And um, we try to educate patients, uh, community members on preventing uh, burn injuries from things such as ramen noodles, 
because the hot liquid from the containers, it will spill onto you and then the starch from the noodles will actually um, cause the burn to be deeper because it actually sticks to you and um, lasts longer even though you've gotten it rinsed off. Also, we are uh, doing prevention on teaching kids to play with pots and pans because when we teach them to play with pots and pans, they then learn the concept that it's okay to take pots and pans off of a stove where mom or dad may be cooking and they're actually um, grabbing a hold of the containers and pulling them down and you're getting scald burns from the hot liquids. So if if someone is scalded at their home, what is their sort of first aid response? What should they do? They need to rinse the area with tempid water. So just like lukewarm water for like 30 seconds. And then if they start to see dark reddened areas or blistering, and it's a large area, then they should go and be seen by a burn specialist, go to the emergency room, and they may direct them to come to the burn center as well. It's scary the way you're describing the ramen and the noodles sticking. And all. Should you peel the noodles off if, or will they come off in the running water? They'll all come right off. You want to get them off immediately. Okay. Yep, and just continue to rinse that. For severe scalds, what is the treatment like? Once If they end up having to come to a burn unit, if it's that severe, what do you do for them? Um, it really is going to depend, number one, on, on the patient. If it's a child or an older adult, uh, their, their skin is much thinner, so the depth of the burn may be much deeper, and they may have to have surgical interventions because they have to have the tissue there debrided, which means we just take the uh, dead burn tissue off of there and have it removed. Other times it's as simple as getting some creams and dressing changes for maybe a week or so, but it really is gonna depend on on the patient and um, their nutrition level as well. You mentioned removing dead burned tissue. Does it grow back? it will grow back, but it, it's going to take time. And depending on how deep the injury is, sometimes we have to do what we call a xenograft, which is where we take pig skin and we put it on there as a temporary cover. And then eventually we will take a piece of their own skin and put that on top um, so that it will grow. So this could be sort of, it sounds like a lengthy recovery. It is. It it. If it's a larger area, it can take up to a year for recovery, but it's actually any burn is like a lifelong um, injury that people have to deal with, depending on the severity. And there could be scarring and all of that too, right? Scarring and contractures, so and sometimes PTSD, depending on how the injury occurred. So we're always seeking um, assistance for these patients as well. Well, I read that the American Burn Association says up to 90% of scald burns are related to cooking, drinking, or serving hot liquids like coffee. So just like you've been talking about, um, what if we, can we talk a little bit about some preventive steps that should be taken when we're cooking? You you mentioned not teaching kids to play with pots and pans because you don't want them grabbing at something on the stove. Yep. There's also uh, creating a safe zone. So that's, um, you can take tape and do like a a three-foot area that you just mark with tape and you teach the child that when you're cooking, they don't go within that safe zone around the stove and that prevents them from going in that area. You also can teach them about not removing hot liquids from the microwave without an adult present. If you have an older adult who is uh, using a walker and they're cooking on the stove, making sure that um, they're not wearing long sleeves that dangle because they can catch fire um, from dangling, even with their house coats. Um, And also they can trip, they can fall. And the big thing is, is using pot holders instead of towels when they're removing things from the stove or the oven. We have had um, injuries that have been severe and fatal where they've actually used towels to remove things from an oven and then um, it caught fire and um, they received some pretty severe injuries. 
Is there a difference between a, a pot holder that's a square and a pot holder that goes onto your hand? The ones that go onto your hand obviously provide a little bit more protection, but it's it's just using a pot Making holder. sure you're using yes. it. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, people age 65, older people are, are at greater risk. Now, you mentioned that their skin is thinner. Is that what makes them at greater risk from... Yeah, because they're... Their skin is a lot more like paper, so when if they get a burn, then it's more severe because there isn't as much protection there. Because what does our skin do? It's our protection, and there isn't that nice thick protective layer that uh, younger individuals have. So older adults tend to get much deeper burns, and then depending on their health, it um, affects how well they heal. And so a scald burn in someone who's 70 may have to be treated more seriously than a scald burn in a 20-year-old, maybe. Absolutely. Well, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Nurse Tamara Roberts, the burn program manager at Upstate University Hospital. Now, since it's winter in central New York, I wanted to look at frostbite. How often does the burn unit take care of someone who's been a victim of frostbite? Um, surprisingly, we take care of several people who experience frostbite. Central New York, you know, the weather changes very rapidly, and we do have quite a large uh, homeless population. And we also have uh, many people who like to go ice fishing or um, college kids who like to go out and consume alcohol. So we have many different populations that uh, go out and experience that cold weather. And might not be prepared or properly bundled or or whatever. Correct. So what is the treatment for frostbite like? Is it it just like a burn? It's much similar. Um, What we do is once a patient arrives at the center, we start to rewarm the extremities. And then at at that point, it's dressings just like a burn. And then depending on the severity of the injury, it's going to take time to determine um, if an extremity is going to be lost or digits are going to be lost. But we continue to do dressings daily, just like a burn. Now, I asked you um, for sort of some first aid response if, you, if you've, you're scalded at home. If you're suffering frostbite, what is the recommended, you know, before you get to the ambulance or the hospital, what are you supposed to do for frostbite? First thing is, is if you aren't sure that you're going to be able to keep that extremity warm, don't start rewarming it and then let it get cold again. So if you know that you're going to be able to keep it warm, you want to bundle it and start rewarming that extremity. Just wrap it in blankets, sheets, anything that you can. Put it inside your clothing so that um, it's closer to your body to just start rewarming those areas. And the big thing is, is knowing the signs of frostbite, the numbness, the tingling, the purple color in your fingertips or your nose or your toes, or getting wet gloves and wet toes and not changing them. Change your socks, change your gloves, don't leave them wet and stay outside because that really puts you at a higher risk for frostbite. And I understand you won't know immediately whether you're going to be able to keep that hand or, or fingers or whatever. Um, but even if you are able to keep them and, and they do sort of recover, will you have lasting damage? At times there's permanent nerve damage. There could be. Mm-hmm. Well, please tell us about the burn unit in general, because that's sort of a special thing that Upstate um, University Hospital has, not every hospital has. Well, we're a six-bed unit, and we take care of the adults on the ICU on the sixth floor and our pediatrics go to the 11th and 12th floor. We have a fantastic group of nurses and nurse managers and wonderful doctors. We also have um, OT, PT, nutrition, dietitian. Occupational um, therapy, physical therapy. Yeah. Okay. Um, Case management. It really is a whole gamut of people that work together to provide uh, phenomenal care to these patients, and then going right into our outpatient clinic, which is also here um, within our institution. Um, Now, this is part of the trauma center designation. You're part of the trauma team. 
Well, we're kind of part of the trauma team. You know, Burns are trauma, but um, we are kind of a separate entity. We're um, an, a burn association verified burn center is what we're going for. Um, we serve 41 counties right now because there are 41 is, counties. Yes. Wow. Yep. Um, the next closest burn center is in Rochester. So we really cover a large area, including our North Country, and and many people are three hours away. Um, We also have counties in Pennsylvania that we... So you said six beds. What happens when the seventh person comes? Um, Depending on their level, sometimes they also go to our 5B floor, which is um, where they're a floor level, and there's nurses down there who are also all trained to take care of the burn patients. so we kind of all work together. The nurses get a little extra training on how to provide that um, extra special care for them. Now, in addition to scalds and frostbite, which we've talked about, what are what are some of the other injuries that you see in the burn unit and take care of? Sometimes we do Steven Johnson syndrome, which is um, kind of an allergic reaction to medications, and um, it's like a severe allergic reaction. It's yeah, and it ends up in a large rash, and um, your skin actually responds by blistering, and it can actually go to a point of tens, which causes sloughing of your tissues on the inside of your body. So they can become uh, violently ill. Wow. We also deal with um, different types of diseases um, that affect the skin, so we get a lot of referrals. All right. And then beyond um, scalds or, or burns from an open flame, there's other types of burns, right? Yep. We we get chemical burns. Um, so anything from, you know, working environments, cement is a big one that we've been seeing. Um, when people are working with cement, they get those types of injuries. Um, Does cement burn the skin? Yes. I didn't realize that. Yes, if it comes into contact with the skin, whether it's the powder or it's already in its liquid form, um, people get injuries from that. So it's probably workers. Yep. People that are, huh. Yeah. Um, Contact burns, electrical injuries. Okay. So electrical would be sort of on the inside of the body or not? Yes. Oh, it would be. Yeah, it's it's on the inside, but they also have... um, Entrance wounds and exit wounds as well, Wow, depending on the severity. Now, the patients may be with you for many weeks, right? They can be with us anywhere from a day up to six months. Okay. Wow. Well, this has been very informative. I appreciate you coming to talk to us. My guest has been Burn Program Manager Tamara Roberts. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, meet the organization that helps those affected by mental illness on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're going to learn about a nonprofit group in Syracuse that's dedicated to improving the lives of those affected by mental illness. With me in the studio is Marla Burns. She's a retired nurse and the president of NAMI Syracuse. That's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me here today. Well, let's talk about how this organization began, because it dates back quite a ways. It does. It goes back to 1981 when families um, joined together to support one another when a family member had been diagnosed with a mental illness. And back in the 80s, um, the psychiatry profession was still blaming families for their loved one's illness. And so... People got kind of fed up with it and decided, you know what, we're going to find out more ourselves. And they started supporting research on mental illness. And 
that's when I got involved back in the 80s because as a psychiatric nurse, I met families and I thought, these seem like great families. How could they have caused schizophrenia or depression? They seem very supportive and loving. So at that point, I got involved um, with the National Alliance on Mental Illness because I wanted to learn more. And I started going to their conventions and finding out some of the latest research on brain illnesses. It was very helpful to me as a psychiatric nurse. Wow, interesting. Well, the the chapter is here in Syracuse, but it covers more than Syracuse, right? Yes, it's um, our local chapter is the Syracuse chapter, but there's a National Alliance on Mental Illness New York State chapter that oversees all the affiliates in New York State, and then there's a national chapter and um, that covers the United States and some into Canada um, and other countries. Well, let's talk about some of the programs, the services um, that are provided, because you have kind of a wide array of of things going on. We do. And one of the main things that we started with were support groups for families. Um, Currently, we have a monthly evening program and then um, once a month, a daytime support group. We also have started a peer support group in the evening. Um, People can find those on our website. Something else that we've really expanded is our Speakers Bureau, which we've always been willing to go out to talk to organizations, churches, schools, Um, but now we have really specific programs. We have one program called Ending the Silence, and it's really geared towards middle and high school students to talk about what are mental illnesses, what are some of the warning signs, and how often these illnesses strike, that these are not strange or weird things. These are medical illnesses, and they affect many people. In fact, we know that one in five Americans will, at some point in their lifetime, experience mental illness. One in four families is impacted by a loved one being diagnosed with a mental illness. So these are very common, and yet we don't talk about it. And still, The concern is if um, children are diagnosed with a mental illness, how they can be then a target of bullying in school. So again, part of our program is to address that, to talk about how these are medical illnesses and it can happen to anyone. So very, it sounds like educational and sort of destigmatizing. Absolutely. And I think that's probably my main mission is to educate, 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 that if people have knowledge and realize that these are medical illnesses, to know what the warning signs are, to know that they're treatable, that that helps fight the stigma. And certainly, I think one of the most important things has been for people who are in recovery from mental illness to tell their stories. And I think what you're seeing now more and more on especially social media, you've got athletes athletes coming out who are saying, you know, I've been dealing with depression all my life, or authors who are saying, I've been dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder, celebrities who say, you know, I've had a depressive episode before, and this is what happened to me, singers who say I have bipolar disorder. So as more people come out and talk about it, it paves the way for normalcy. It cuts down on the stigma that if, oh, if that person who's very successful in their life can admit they've had this struggle and they're doing fine now, maybe I can too. Maybe I can talk about it. And I think I'm I'm really grateful to the peers who are on our board of directors because they go forth every day with a great deal of courage talking about their struggles and their triumphs of dealing with a mental illness. At different schools and other organizations, right? Yes. Well, and reaching out to other people who are just in the in the throes of their illness so that they know, oh, it's going to get better. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Marla Burns. She's the president of the Syracuse chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, And we're going through some of the services that are offered and programs offered. Now, the website is easily found by Googling National Alliance on Mental Illness in Syracuse, but we will also have a link to that on the healthlinkonair.org website as well. Now, I know your website um, has find a doctor listings or find a provider kind of listings if people um, who are listening are looking for a mental health provider. Um, 
you also offer some residences. Tell me about um, we have um, two residences that we operate, and we did that a number of years ago because of the issue of the lack of housing for people with a mental health diagnosis, and that sometimes people's discharge was held up because they didn't have a safe place to go. And so that's why we invested um, some of our money to supporting two residences. Now, tell me how you became involved, because you've been involved for 40 years, right? Well, it's it's that long. Yeah, I've been (laughs) involved a long time. Um, First, I I started because I was interested as a nurse in knowing more. Um, And I do have a family history of mental illness. And now it's become much more personal. My son, 14 years ago, was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type, which means Basically, he has symptoms of depression, mania, psychosis, an eating disorder, some obsessive compulsive traits. So he um, he got hit hard um, with mental illness, and his journey has been um, very difficult. And there was a period of four years that he was homeless and on the streets. Um, there was five months when he was a missing person, and I had no idea where he was. Um, so there's been a lot of tears and um, agony over his struggle with um, his illness. Um, Fortunately, um, he has started um, to accept treatment um, four years ago, and he's doing well now. Um, He has his own apartment. He has friends. Um, He works on his music and his art. And we have a relationship again, because there were times when he was so ill, um, he didn't even know who I was. Wow. So you come at this, you've got a professional background, but you've also got a very personal experience with this as well. Oh, yeah, it's it's very personal. And, and that's what I think all the families um, bring to the table is that we have been on this journey and we want to make it easier for the next family because families, when a mental illness strikes, they're bewildered. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do, who to call, who do I talk to? Um, what families say is this, this isn't the kind of illness that then your neighbor brings you a casserole because somebody in the family is sick. This is the kind of illness that people are afraid to talk to other people about because they're afraid of the shame, the stigma um, that it will bring to the family. And that's why we want to speak up. That's why we want to break down those barriers of stigma so that people can get more support from their natural support network. But in the meantime, that's why we're here, is that we are families that know exactly what you're going through. So call us. We can talk to you. We can listen to you. We can be the shoulder you cry on. And we can help you in this journey finding help for your loved one, coping strategies for your loved one, coping strategies for yourself, because these are not easy illnesses to deal with. Again, though, sometimes a depression can be a mild depression or it can be a severe depression and lifelong. So you don't know what you got until you got it. You don't know whether this is going to be something that, okay, we can deal with this time and we got it taken care of and you figure out more coping strategies and you got it under control, or is this going to be something you're going to have to pay attention to for the rest of your life to manage? Well, I know some of what's um, discussed in the Ending the Silence program um, covers sort of the warning signs of mental health conditions. So um, I thought, can you kind of go over those with us? Warning signs of mental illness um, can be quite subtle. And sometimes what's the first thing is can be a change in your sleep pattern, having difficulty sleeping or sleeping too much. Or a family might see that they're normally very um, engaged teenager who loves to be going to dances and be involved in sports, now has lost interest in those things that used to be important to them. So losing interest in the things that you always had a passion for. Changes in appearance. Um, Somebody who's normally kind of meticulous about how they take care of their hair and their makeup. Now they've kind of lost interest in doing that. Um, 
people saying, I'm depressed, or I, gee, I have no energy anymore. Um, I feel rotten. Um, people who have find that they're getting anxious and worried, and they can't really sort out where is that coming from. Um, so it's, it's feelings that change. Um, people may start having the trouble sleeping, changes in appetite. People can lose their appetite or else they can start eating more. People might start getting kind of paranoid, thinking, you know, I think people are listening to me. Um, I think people are watching me. Those are, you know, red flags that, you know, why, why are you feeling that way? Why, you know, what's going on? So people need to pay attention to that. And if, if a person is starting to experience that and you notice, then to say to them, you know what, why don't, why don't we go to the doctors? Why don't you get a physical? Because again, medical conditions can also mimic some of these things. Oh, sure. um, you know, a thyroid problem can cause trouble, create problems for you to sleep, can create anxiety, weight loss. So let's get those things checked out. And the wonderful thing that has happened in the last few years is that primary doctors now ask about depression, ask about the sleep disturbance, ask, are you under a lot of stress? So they're inquiring, they're opening that door so that people can talk about their mental health along with their physical health, because all of that is tied together. And anytime that people are starting to feel something different about themselves, they should go to their primary doctor, get a good physical, get some blood work done, see what's going on. Because the other thing that we know is that people who die by suicide 50% of the people that die by suicide within 30 days had seen a medical professional. They knew something wasn't right. And yet, maybe nobody asked about, have you had thoughts of harming yourself? Again, to open that door to find out, is that what's going on with this person? And it's important that people ask about that. If they see changes and think, maybe their loved one is depressed, to ask, are you having any thoughts of harming yourself? It's not going to cause the person to commit suicide. It may actually be the lifeline that they need to be able to talk about what's going on. Well, thank you so much to my guest, Marla Burns from the Syracuse chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. This has been Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Jenny Burkholder, a writer from Pennsylvania, is author of the chapbook Repaired from Finishing Line Press. She's recently had nonfiction work appear in So to Speak and Epiphany. I will read her moving essay, Avocado, which describes the friendship between two women as one of the women is facing death. Early in the day, we sit under your neighbor's avocado tree. The fruits are ripe and plentiful. Some we pick with our hands right off the branches, their speckled, pocked black skins taut over soft green flesh. And some we pick with an avocado picker, a long-handled claw that paws at the fruit until it drops into the basket and then onto our table. I count 26. Later, we walk for an hour up and down the street-lined sidewalks of Vallejo, California. The dusty sunlight begins to fade as you relay all you know about your adopted city, local socioeconomic breakdowns, who lives where, and what will happen at the next zoning commission meeting. You left Chicago 12 years ago, coming here to hike the Sierra Nevada mountains with Phil, the dogs, and boundless energy. Now we're sitting on your aging brown leather couch. Around you, old copies of Mother Jones, The New Yorker, and Sunset pile up on the coffee table. Your bookshelves stuffed with books about the existence of God and waging peace, the anatomy of typeface and design, bulge around you. You want to go back outside and walk some more, but you're exhausted and dying. I can see your bright eyes yellowing even under your tortoise shell cat-eye glasses. 
We have a quiet moment while John and Phil dice vegetables and saute chicken, and your sister fiddles with her computer. I offer to rub your aching feet as you relax into the comfort of your worn couch. They're warm and dry, and I am surprised at their narrowness, surprised because of how far you have walked, how far you have climbed and traveled, surprised that these almost dainty feet have borne the weight of cancer for so long. Like a devotee, I cradle them, gently press and knead them, the soul of the foot, a universe, a complex blueprint of the internal body, mapped in lines, pressed in toes, balanced on the heels. And there, a little to the left of your right foot arch and below the ball is your liver. It's blocked, painfully cramped. This is your last good day. When we say goodbye, you stand in the doorway of your beautiful house, framed by sunlight and arm in arm with your sister. You wave and smile. On the border between living and dying, we know, deep within our bones, this will be the last time we see each other. I hug you, mindful not to say, see you soon or get better, but rather, you are beautiful. In my suitcase are eight ripe avocados tucked in a brown paper bag, and when I gently split one, cross-cut silky flesh, you hover there, a radiant echo, and I savor your shimmering song, green, green, green. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, surgery for spinal tumors. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.